welcome to another episode of Human Becomings. Today, I have Stefan Hieringer with me on the show. Stefan, did I pronounce your name correctly? You did it about as perfect as you could, and hello to you, Mila. Thanks for having me. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. It's always such a pleasure to have great humans like you, and um, I can't wait to explore your mind and your heart. So, Stefan, tell me a little bit about how did you get into your business, the Human Innovation Garage? How did I get into my business? So I think, uh, you know, I think like for all of us, life is a journey. And um, to bring it up today, the Human Innovation Garage has been in existence. And every time people ask me how long has the Human Innovation Garage existed, particularly over the last 12 months, I realized that company now has existed for more than six years. And my journey really was very traditionalist. And I think that's part of when you talk about heart and your podcast talks about heart, talks about soul um, uh, quite a bit. Um, I think that's important to understand someone's journey and, and be curious about it. And curiosity, I'm sure, is another piece we're going to talk about uh, in this hour quite a bit. Um, I came from a very traditionalist, um, I almost uh, always call it a conformist approach, uh, growing up and raised in Germany, went to school there. I did my studies, uh, very traditional, and then ended up uh, in the early 90s in, in the United States for a hospitality company. And people were always, for me, at the forefront. If that was in hospitality, obviously, but also when I was then in the late 90s, 97, 98, branching off into technology and kind of what everybody now wants to be and everybody refers to as the entrepreneur. And that brought me the journey um, up to 2012 of starting various companies. And then in 2012, um, I um, really was inspired to do something which uh, solely focused on my, my spirit, my talent, and what I really enjoyed most, which was supporting individuals from a really servant leadership standpoint and influencing and uh, inspiring teams and motivate individuals to really go beyond what they see uh, clearly in front of themselves, kind of see the you know, see the impossible and see the invisible and do the impossible, so to speak. I love it. You mentioned about the spirit, right? And that is the first time I've ever heard anyone mention about the spirit. And it's, it's, it's a real thing. Can, can you expand a little bit about the spirit, please, that you mentioned? <laughs> So when, when I, in, in context of spirit, talk with people, particularly in, in, in organizations, I think when we, when we, and there's a very simple way how I explain it to people is, I mean, there's a Japanese way to explain it, right? When you kind of find finally what's your passion, your mission, your vocation, your profession, which in Japanese philosophy is called igikai. But then also when we really, from a simple way between skill and challenge, kind of want to explain that. Um, and we think about, I have a high skill, and I'm very effective at something and I have a challenge which gives me a lot of adrenaline arousal. And what I talk about then a lot is the flow state where kind of that becomes kind of an increasing skill requirement. Uh, there's not boredom. There is a lot of, uh, it's a little bit anxiety there. We're not exactly sure if anybody has ever parachuted or anybody ever delta glided or parasailed, kind of that moment before you are often flying is tremendously overwhelming, um, lots of amounts of anxiety, but then suddenly it's an immense amount of peace. And that state, finding that at work as a flow state, that's when your spirit is kind of in concurrence with that what you do. If you're an artist, if you're a painter, and you don't realize that you're painting for three hours, if you can find that state, 
that's, I think, when your spirit is really in sync with what you do and, and who you are and, and where you're supposed to be. That's beautiful. And that's so much needed for us to realize, especially in this era of, of noise, right? I say noise yeah. because everything is going at the rate of lightning or even faster. Um, you know, everyone is either on your social media, everyone is either on your smartphones, failing to look at or failing to interact with others and most importantly with themselves and i have a question in relation to you know having a relationship with the soul because i know that you have a program the personal innovation strategy uh, that you observe in your business and you speak about remaining grounded in high stake and high pressure situations and you know when we are in high pressure situations emotional intelligence comes into place <laughs> and and when emotional intelligence intelligence comes into place it is quite a challenge for most of us right to remain grounded and to think with clarity most of us get myopic vision as to all right let's just do this now or we can't or we don't have the ability to connect a to B or A to Z or C to Y. So can you speak a little bit about how can we become, remain, uh, to be grounded in a sense? That is, that is a very complex question, Leila. So let's, let's talk about, um, let, let me kind of uh, dissect a little bit what you all said. You, you brought so many wonderful points up. Let me start with emotional intelligence, which I think is the underlying factor of what I talk about in the context of personal innovation strategy, I also talk about what I call radical self-awareness. And radical self-awareness or self-awareness in general is I think when we, when we go inside, it includes everything from uh, self-management to uh, you know, integrity, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But being able to say, okay, I have the ability in speaking about emotional intelligence to self-regulate based on my self-awareness. Because if we think about emotional intelligence, there's really an internal side to emotional intelligence and there's an external side to emotional intelligence, that classical square and the four squares put together. On the, on the self-management side, the first thing what needs to happen, and it could be very simple things, and we're very quick to say, oh, he or she triggered me, the situation triggered me. And we have to understand what triggers are. In my practice, I work a lot around what I call executive trauma. Um, many, many years ago, um, a psychologist who uh, today still practices out in Arizona, she's written a book about the emotional and uh, the trauma egg. And if anybody has ever done any trauma work, um, there's, a, there's a progressive uh, way how trauma works in context of the situation happens. There are particular people involved in the situation, which are the actors in the situation. The person who's ultimately left with the trauma has a particular need in the situation. And the... Uh, situation then uh, escalates and then the need is either met or not and if the need is not met met then the person will over a period of time when that repeatedly happens will develop a coping mechanism or if that particular event is significant enough that person will have developed at that moment a coping mechanism which then can turn into all kinds of things even up to the point of ptsd etc in over the years that i've done the work i do i've seen a very similar thing happen in organizations and a very similar things happen with executives on the individual basis, because I'm a true believer 
uh, going to your question where we started, right? Spirit, soul, emotional intelligence, that is focused at the individual level. And I think that's very, very important to understand that domino effect of where culture really starts. We talk in grandiose words and organizations about the vision of the executives or the vision of the president or the vision of the CEO. But if we really boil it down to net, the fact is vision is nothing else but communicating my beliefs as an executive and the senior leading executive in an organization to the rest of the organization in a relatable manner. And we talk about marketing today very much in terms of how relatable is marketing. And that's really where it starts. So having said that, this is not about marketing. This is about being authentic, being self-regulated, being aware of what is happening for me and being able to tie it to something which then allows me to say, okay, here is what's happening. Here is what I feel. Here is what is kind of the emotional sensation, what's happening for me. And oftentimes we're very quick to snap because the nature of our brain is that we are evaluating every microsecond, is it safe or is it not? And our amygdala, which is kind of the survival brain, the, what I'd like to call the reptile, the crocodile, starts snapping sometimes very quickly. And then more we are able to kind of interject here and say, okay, this is the situation and become for a moment essentially analytical and interject and say, okay, my self-management is necessary in order for me not to react a certain way. Because if I do that, and now we're going from the internal to the external, my social environment and my social relationship management is affected by it if I react the following way in the following manner, which will destroy all in any relationship I have if I show that type of a reaction. That consequential and logical thinking in applying that to the moment that I feel a trigger is really kind of slowing yourself down. Now, to your question, what can you do? Breathing is probably one of the most uh, and predominant ways of, and easiest ways to really do that or to find a way to break the moment of the particular tension. Get up out of your chair, stand up for a moment. If you're in a telephone conversation um, where something becomes very, very tense or a video chat or anything else like that, um, I've said to people, and, and your audience will laugh and you will laugh about this, I've said to people, you know, just disconnect Skype or disconnect Zoom for a moment and take a moment, take a breath, walk around in your office and then go back on and say, you know what, I'm so sorry that the, the connection dropped. Because sometimes we need that immediate distraction for ourselves to really regain our composure, but also the beauty of acknowledgement that I'm not operating at my best and that's okay, but I'm not going to make it the responsibility and the detriment of the other person because it's not their fault. And having that perspective, which goes back to, you know, curiosity, positivity, um, and, and the various mindset uh, uh, pieces, as we talk about a lot, uh, has a lot to do with it. So uh, it's a lengthy and, and a very complex question, but uh, I'll, I'll stop here. And I'm sure there's some things you probably picked up we want to go a little deeper on. But it's, uh, I think that's a, that's a solid start. So, <clears throat> well, there's a lot of points that I want to ask right now. So that was beautifully pitched upon to, to, to start with. You mentioned to disconnect Zoom and to take a breather. I, I truly believe in that. Sometimes at that moment, right, at the moment of stress, yep. we do lose sight of who we are, 
we do lose sight of of you know how we are reacting like you said you know we are snapping like a crocodile and <clears throat> and we do need to like go take a breather come back and say oh sorry my connection went up i have done that before too because sometimes i meditate not sometimes i meditate i meditate a lot even i myself find myself you know like thinking really quickly and wanting to react really quickly and as a human i only it's only natural for me to react but i catch myself really quickly and i do say i sometimes i purposely switch off the zoom or drop the call and recollect myself and i call people back saying sorry that call was dropped but that works stefan yeah works immensely <laughs> <laughs> you know it's 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 funny i mean i i uh, and, and I'll, I'll i'll share a funny anecdote with you a gentleman i had the privilege of working with uh, in italy and uh, that was in my career where i was for many many years in building uh, global e-learning companies and we had um, done an, a merger and acquisition of our company into their company in italy and he was and still today is considered one of the leading e-learning brains in the world and we had met at mit years and years and years ago when we both were MIT Global Strategy Advisors. And we were in his office in Italy, and at that time they had acquired our company. And uh, he says in, in, the, in the biggest Italian accent, he goes, well, if we do not know the answer, we will just hang up the Skype and we will come back. We will have a moment to find the answer and then we go back and we say, oh, I'm so sorry, Skype dropped. And, and, and we have the answer. <laughs> and it was it was, and, and, it, and I recalled that so many times. And at the time, it really didn't make any sense to me because it was not about frustration for him. It was about, you know, we didn't have the answer in a conference call with a big client like McKinsey or, or Boeing or somebody else. And, and that was kind of their MO. But more importantly, it really gave me inspiration to saying, wow, taking that break, having that time out, having that moment. I mean, even when you go to, to, to marriage counseling or couples counseling, the couple's counselor will say to you, um, you know, it's not about, I don't want to talk about it. And there's a great book here written, uh, Terry Real, who's a local therapist here in article, wrote this world famous book about, I don't want to talk about it, which is kind of the, uh, a lot of men's uh, mode of operation, right? I don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. it, it. It really is a moment where you can say, you know what? Give me, I need some space. I need to collect myself. And then also on the other side of the interactor, who you're interacting with, or if you're the one who's being asked for that to give space, be graceful, right? Graceful leadership is something we really don't talk about much, but graceful leadership is, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna give you that space, Mila. Take, take five minutes and then let's reconnect when it's convenient, but also when it makes constructively, collaboratively, co-creatively sense to sit back down at the table and say, you know what, let's continue the conversation. Because oftentimes we, you know, we have a meeting for the sake of a meeting because we're lonely, but that's not really the reason to have a, and the purpose to have a meeting. It's about uh, to be effective or to have a conversation, a dialogue to really move something, an agenda, whatever it may be for. Right. And I absolutely like what you just mentioned about graceful leadership, right? Yep. And that's so important and that's a missing element in a lot of spaces today. Graceful leadership and and graceful meaning you know people often have the wrong conception of graceful meaning polite or you are quiet or you are passive 
and that's not it. And you put it in such a brilliant way, in a graceful meaning, giving that space. And I feel like being graceful as a leader, right, shows hardship where you're actually showing love. I don't mean love as in let's hug and kiss. No, love as in I truly understand you. I, I'm truly listening to you. I, I recognize that you need this space. Right? Yep, that's exactly right. And that, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please. And that allows you to build a solid relationship. Most people think building a relationship in a leadership or hardship platform is based on social exchange where it's one-sided, where you will do exactly what I say. And when you do, my relationship will strengthen with you. And from there, I will give you a promotion. And that's the wrong mentality. And the right mentality is to have a grateful leadership, right? To build that relationship, to, to walk that journey along with whomever is joining your company or joining your space or your community or at a larger scale nation as well. And, and you know, I think it's important to, <laughs> when we think about grace, I think, and you said exactly the key point, we, we, we probably think mostly of, uh, of movement, right? We, we think about somebody's moving point A to B or they're doing something, but it, we're observing um, movement in, in one way or another. When we go to the ballet and, and we see something beautiful or a dance or uh, uh, somebody walks or somebody uh, does certain gestures and we say, oh, wow, that's graceful. Or somebody falls in an awkward way and they catch themselves and we say, oh, well, they felt graceful. But I think when we, when we uh, not but, but and, if we think about a leader and, and in the context of graceful leadership, I think what's very, very important is, is the respect, but also the intentionality and the strategic observations, right? Meaning, if you're graceful as a leader, you're very clear and you communicate clearly with clarity what it is and where do you want to go, right? And what that also then requires is that whatever you say and your communication is very intentional. And I think that's a big part where at the very basic, at the very beginning of what graceful leadership is, we very, very often we, you know, we, we, we forget that. And the other part is also making space for talent, making space for, you know, other people, because leadership is not about me, 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 me. It's about how can I empower you to operate at your very best? And how can I help you to find the space that you really do the most creative, the best, the most, the most, uh, you know, uh, amazing work in, so to speak, and how can I provide that space for you? And space, not just in terms of the resource of an office, but the space of going back to where we started, right? Giving you the space, so your spirit of creativity, where you kind of merge these pieces, where you're really, really good at, that's what you love to do, and that's what the world needs in context of impact. While we're, by the way, we're paying you a salary for that. And you get to do that, but we need to make the space for you. And I think that's where a lot of companies just really, really fail in stewardship of the responsibility to make space for that talent. Right. And that's beautifully put, Stefan. I absolutely love that. You know, how can we enable your spirit? And I truly believe in that because we want humans to show up as they are with a sense of belonging, right? Yeah. yeah. And most of the time when we 
when we refer to the work plane, workspace, people often think, oh, this is your job. This is what I'm paying you for. So you do this. And most leaders do not have that concept of jobs, job title or job descriptions evolve. Humans evolve. They can't be doing one specific job for five years or 10 years or even two years, right? If, if our attention span is so limited and if, if we can't eat cake for breakfast, lunch and dinner for three months or six months, how can someone expect a human to do the same work for eight hours or sometimes 16 hours a day, every day, for five years or two years or even a month or six months? And that's the burnout point that people hit and that's when they lose their spirit that's when they lose their identity i feel like the identity is a huge factor in how people show up can you expound a little bit about identity and and the spirit how people show up with their spirit so i think let me let me go back um one piece where you said you know belonging i think sense of belonging is a big one and, and I oftentimes wonder if somebody would do a study and, and the, the sense of belonging is really about as important as food and shelter, right? That's just part who we are from a human need. Right. So I, I always wonder if somebody would do a study around social media, because when you think about kind of all these cohorts and Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram, that people, when they, when they get a lot of likes and they get a lot of retweets and they get a lot of uh, shares, uh, people feel that they belong. They have found their, you know, their 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 tribe, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the pieces where um, the way we counterfeit as individuals loneliness today is very, very different than we did it prior to the date of the internet. And when we also then think about the effects of what loneliness, where it comes from. I mean, for example, and and I'm the first one to tell you. Um, I call myself as a joke, a recovering narcissist because I know, um, and I know that I have, and I've done many, many personality tests. I have narcissistic traits and most people in one form or another have narcissistic traits, particularly if they're type A, particularly if they're executives, particularly if they're CEOs. And I've had more than one conversation where in the first conversation, by even exploring with somebody, if I want to work with them. Um, and if they want to work with me, because it's a chemistry match, really, I've said that the first conversation, um, you know, you are, um, in one of my favorite efforts using in that sentence, you are a narcissist and, and there's a moment of silence. And then there's a moment where they go, you know what, you're right. You're right. And, and when people get to this point of recognizing that, that also opens up the door for the things which connect us as human beings, which is now you know, identity in terms of vulnerability, openness, being receptive to feedback and being open to having really an, an, a truthful conversation. And, and that's really where when you think about, you know, identity and how do I define myself by am I am I doing it by including others and by defining myself like other people do or do I do it by excluding others? Right. So. Exclusion, ultimately, is kind of an undermining of my own control of my environment. And that really is where a lot of the pain and the self-inflicted conflict really starts. 
So if my identity is clear who I am, which is clarity about my values, we spoke about vision earlier, what are my values? What do I believe in? Kind of what's my personal mission statement? What do I stand for? And we say a lot, so what do you stand for? Most people will not be able to answer that question. And there's a very simple way to do that. If, if you know, I invite you and, and, and your listeners, I, I, a very easy exercise is to say, okay, so here is, you know, make a list of the things that you want to accomplish in life. For many, many people, it's like, you know, I want to take care of my family. I want to take care of my wife, my husband, my partner, uh, my children, uh, my parents sometimes often as well. And the way I want to do this is by being a graceful executive who supports whatever that sentence then brings. But that's kind of where a personal mission statement starts. Or I am, um, you know, I'm a, a, a union worker who is uh, creating uh, homes for people and, and uh, beautiful uh, roofs and construction buildings. And that allows me to take care of my family by earning a good living because I work, et cetera, et cetera. You, you see that just where I'm going here. And that becomes a personal mission statement, but also with restrictions, with ethical values, with integrity, with values, with boundaries. Um, and that's really becomes your identity because identity does not exist without values. Identity does not exist without boundaries. And identity does not exist without a form of expression for people to see and understand who you are. And that requires everybody around that individual, if that's in a corporate environment or in a family or in a relationship, in a partnership, that requires space for that person to be able to express themselves. Beautifully put, Stefan. So I have a question since you know we, our, our identity is related to our personal statement, right? What do we stand for? Do we, do you, does our identity change though, like in different environments, right? Because if it's a personal statement, this is what I stand for. And as we evolve, we, you know, as humans, we evolve, we innovate and we become better or sometimes we do not become better. But does our identity change based on what we are undergoing in our life? And that impacts our spirit and that impacts how we show up in different places. But I'm always curious from our, and I want to hear your perspective, does our identity change in different environments, even though, you know, what we stand for and does it change based on when we interact with different groups of friends or different groups of people? So let me, let me answer the, the first question very quickly. I, I believe our identity changes. And I think it's important, right? So when we, when we think about what identity is and we describe it, let's say, as a distinguishing trait of, of who we are or you, you want to call it personality or character, um, which identity is always related to what is the role we're playing in a particular environment? And let's call that environment for the sake of this discussion society. Mm -hmm. right? That defines... Um, who we are uh, in terms of what's the place we're taking in society. And for some people, I think that's where kind of the first challenge starts is they have difficulty identifying who they are in the context of 
the norms we set in society. And some people say, you know, I really don't feel that I have a clear identity. Mm. Right? So right. if we then think about personality and we think about character traits, those are really the two things from the outside looking at someone who defines someone's identity, right? It becomes perceptive. Okay. And it becomes to a large extent very objective. Now very subjective, right? Kind of the the who am I? Right. So, and this is where I think going back to the very first question you asked me, you know, when we think about the, the young kids, I mean, the first time we have five generations in the workplace, five generations. Right. And, and the millennials and younger, and I don't say millennials in a negative way, I think we're doing a disservice by saying, oh, the millennials. I think millennials are absolutely, excuse my choice of words, absolutely fucking brilliant. We just don't understand how to properly engage them. But here's, here's another handicap they deal with. Identity is influenced by the way I think about myself, but also is influenced by the way I think that other people think about me. Mm -hmm. That creates my identity. And if a lot of people tell me who I am and if I don't have boundaries and I don't have clarity, I don't have a good value system, suddenly I become who everybody else wants me to be. Right. Right? right. So now I'm being going back to emotional intelligence, to all the choices I make, to all the way I'm acting, it suddenly becomes a reaction to all the things around me and I get triggered. And then going back to your question, can my identity change? Absolutely. Because if I change the way I act, if I change the way I may be even looking, if I change the way I appear in the context of my social interactions, well, I'm changing my identity, right? Right, right. So that's a big part of that. And the other part is all the various stimuli we have around us. When you go to a concert or you go to a theater piece or you go to uh, any kind of a, 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 a presentation, you go to a, a, a lecture. If I go to a particular event and there's a particular circumstance, well, that influences me as well. If I go to school and for four years I get bullied, well, that's a significant trauma event. So logically, my identity will change. Right, right. And I think we, we, we think, you know, we get to know people at a particular moment in time, but we oftentimes, we also, because we're, we're human beings, we're, we're, you know, we love to judge because we've learned if we judge other people, that makes us feel better because it makes us bigger, better, faster than them. Um, but that's A, not graceful. It's not leadership. It's not, uh, you know, doing any service to humanity. Uh, it's certainly not heartfelt, um, but I become an influencer, right? I mean, the, right. there's a lot of people who say, oh, it's my role model. I want to be just like them. It's like em emulating something, which they're really not, but it's copying. So is their identity changing because of that? Absolutely. So there's, you know, I think there's a lot of evolutionary changes we can make in that respect with our identity, so to speak. Um, but 
you know, I'm not saying it's good or bad or what should be or should not be, but I think having the awareness around it um, and being able to kind of guard yourself against becoming someone who someone else wants you to be, um, I think is a, is a healthy boundary. Right. And I love how, you know, you touched on so many different facets of identity, right? From, from a school perspective and you're so right stuff on when you know when we engage in, in universities right we let's say if a student majors in communication or for student majors in business they take on that well usually business students um they take on that very businessy look or businessy kind of lingo the language changes the narrative changes and if someone majors in human conditioning they are kind of behavior how they present themselves changes and everything changes and i want to touch on something that you said about you know if someone is bullied and their identity changes and i recently did this research on the co-relationship between our identities and uh, when someone gets bullied from a lens of dehumanization mm-hmm. right and and because it, this is close to my heart i underwent uh, bullying and I actually contemplated suicide but and this is a research that I did because I wanted to turn that around and everyone whom I spoke to during this research and the more I spoke to them they said that during the period of time where they were bullied either physically verbally emotionally or mentally they felt that their ability to speak up was eliminated. They couldn't find their voice. They couldn't find whom they are anymore. They lost a sense of them. They became this unrecognizable person. Yeah. And that's such a detrimental impact, right? And and people often think bullying is, is very, or it's just verbal. You know, it does not have great impacts, but it has got deeper wounds, deeper impact. And for some people, it can take years to recover or it might look as if they have recovered, but that can be triggered, right? Trigger points or trigger words. Well, I think that's, you know, I think it's such a, that's exactly, you know, when, when I talk about executive trauma, and I think in general trauma work, when we think about it, and I was just, as you were speaking, I mean, identity is really my originality, right? So I have an original identity. And if we mm-hmm. think about this from, ch- from children on, I mean, let's start with language, right? When you think about kind of where kids start learning language kind of in the first year, and then they learn kind of the one word languages in year number two, and then kind of the two word stage, and then kind of at about 25 to 30 months onward, they start learning multiple words. And then we think about, which is so interesting, the, the, the convergence of all the various influences we have, and then we take neuroplasticity in the context of that, right? So right. senses, language, and cognition internal, right? So if I now look at all these influences I get as a young adult or as a young child, um, I, from birth on, the first thing what I, heard, what I learn is, is vision, is hearing and is touch, right? Touch is so important. Right. And I think even as we get older, 
And and in this day and age, unfortunately, we live in a society where everything we're telling people not to do is actually not only disconnecting us further, but is actually making us worse human beings. And and no disrespect to anybody, I, I understand all the trauma people go through with being wrongfully and not touched, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not an advocate of saying, well, let's forget all that. But just who we are as human beings and the way our senses develop, that's a big part. And then in infancy, the next thing which happens very early on is kind of the social relationships, right? And social relationships are formed at a very early stage in infancy until it goes to childhood and adolescence, where in adolescence, I mean, as you know, uh, you know, women until about the age of 24, 25, and men until about the age of 27, 28, the brain is not until that time fully developed. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting all these influences, in particular, as you just shared, when somebody's in school and gets bullied, I mean, their identity is completely influenced by trying to be pushed into a square which they may or may not want to belong in, right? Because people have significant influence on others. And then harder it is for me to understand potentially what my identity is, and I'm being told who I am, or I'm being told who I'm supposed to be to conform to a societal norm, or to conform to an expectation of my parents, or to conform to a peer group. We've learned to take the path of least resistance. So suddenly, I'm just going to do what everybody tells me. That'll be the easiest thing. So then the second choice is, am I going to be authentic? Am I going to show you who I really am? Or I'm going to wear a mask? Right. Which we do a lot of the times. We tend to wear masks. Right. So if, if then we take this back to how can I change in response to experiences and the effort it takes as I get older to change experience, which are kind of nicker into my brain based on neuroplasticity, there are significant requirements and there's significant effort required. Is it possible? Absolutely. We today know there's proof, there's studies, everything out there. People can change. And I don't mean this just in a say, oh, you can change. I mean, literally we can kind of reform our brain. Right, right. But the effort it takes is so much more significant, kind of right in that critical phase where a lot of the trauma happens to us in school and study time, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why I think particularly as we also enter as young adults into, you know, leadership roles or into organizations where we are exposed to senior leadership, the leadership responsibility in terms of making that space providing that that healthy environment of letting people flourish in who they are is so important. There's a wonderful book. Uh, you probably, you know, you know about Sally Hawkshead, right? Right. So Sally wrote this beautiful book about how to fascinate. And when she, in one of her talks, I saw her speak and she says, you know, my father made me aware that you shouldn't be trying to fit in and do less of something, you should do more of something that you're already really, really good at. So in my world, we talk about strength coaching and helping people really identify what they're really good at, which creates that flow state for them. Why make people do something which they don't want to do? Right. 
I'm going to stop. I, I'm going to go on and on and on and on. But I, I think that that hopefully I, I answered a lot of what what you were thinking in terms of the idea. Right. Yeah, that's that was just absolutely brilliant stuff on. So something really stood out to me. What you said about you know why make someone do something that they are not good at or where their spirit is not aligned. And that is such an important point, right? That's such an important dialogue or conversation that we need to have. Because most of the time, people hire because to upkeep a business, to fill that number. And <clears throat> most of the time, people come in is with, with the false, I say false because we have been conditioned to think, graduate out of school, get a job, you know, and this is what you're good at because this is what you majored in school. And this is the only job that you can do because this is what you've been told in, in university. You're good in marketing, so that's why you majored in this. And then when you come into the spaces, and like we touched on earlier in this conversation, burnout happens, right? And that's all part of, of becoming conditioned, yep. right? And every space when i say every space and i'm i'm just going to stick with the workspace right now every space become innovative every space i feel that it grows exponentially when humans are given the liberty to exercise what they are good in what they excel in where they can actually express their identities and it's people before business Right. And when I say people before business is allowing them to be and become in a space where they come in, they do something and then they move on to something else. And it's not like saying, oh, you can't stick to one job. And people often relate this to the millennial problem. And and I do not like that. I feel that like you, I feel that millennials are just bloody brilliant. And I feel that there's always a millennial in every generation, but in different generations, the conditioning happens, right? With people from who are 60 to 70 years old, they feel like, oh, we didn't complain. This is how we have done because they didn't have those resources back then. Right. And that might be one millennial in that 60 to 70 uh, year old generation where they thought differently, but they conformed because they didn't want to display their identity. They didn't want to display, this is my spirit, this is how I'm going to be. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's so interesting. I mean, um, so I think you, you're, you're absolutely correct. So I think I talk a lot about traditionalists, right? And the traditionalist is my generation and older. Mm -hmm. I think the, the easiest way to really describe this is when I grew up and I went to school and, and I had a problem with something and I would go to my father or even my mother um, who was an amazing woman, and my father was a politician all his life. I mean, about as traditionalist as he gets. Mm -hmm. uh, he's now almost 92 years old, and I still, at my old age myself, I try to convince my father that I'm that I matter, right? That I'm good enough. And wow. I think that's part of the way we grew up. And when we would ask for help, the response more often than not was like, "Well, go go study, go figure it out. What, what's wrong with it? Why don't you know that?" And right. You look at the millennial generation and younger, to them, community, uh, accessing the knowledge of community, the collaborative power of, of, of education and knowledge access, they understood from little on because they were able to connect beyond just the desk they're at and the guy who sits next to them 
who may be brilliant or a dummy or whatever else it is, um, it, that has completely changed the playing field in that respect. Now, it, you know, when we think about also in terms of education and why people enter, it's this old saying of Alan Watts, the philosopher, you know, life should be more like music. And when Mozart wrote music, he didn't write the first note and the last note and said, now let's figure out how we get there. It was like, let's write the first note and let's kind of dance and enjoy it and see where it takes us. And I think the generation of millennials and younger, they're starting to listen more to their heart and their soul, right? And there's a, there's a, there's a distinction to me between soul and heart. Soul is a lot about, you know, integrity and, and, and clarity and, and meditation. Um, I am a huge fan of this new book, which you may have seen. Uh, have you heard about this book called The 5 a.m. Club? Yes, yes. I'm a, I'm a 5 a.m. follower. I do my 20-20-20 protocol every single morning. I get up at 5. I uh, run or bike for 20 minutes. Um, I meditate for 20 minutes every single morning. And I read or write or read uh, or look at an inspirational video on, on YouTube or in, in other sources I have uh, for 20 minutes. And um, until about 6.15, 6.30, I don't touch my phone uh, except for, for downloading the music, uh, which I have for my workout list. Um, and I don't do any emails. I don't do any text messages. So by the time 6.45, 7 comes along, that's when I'm live. Right. And it makes a significant difference because it allows you to establish a protocol where you're really focusing not to just enter into being on someone else's time schedule and have somebody else kind of pull your leash, so to speak. And you spoke about liberty, right? And, and giving people the space to do what they're really, really good at. I think in companies today, when we talk about and people go into human resource offices and, and human resource uh, uh, directors, and I think we're finally seeing a changing generation. Um, so please don't anybody take this offensive, but uh, I, I need to say it. When I started my first company in 97, 98, that was a compliance training company. And at that time, there was a huge discussion after 1998 here in the United States was about sexual harassment, discrimination, and diversity. And we were developing a platform which was exactly addressing that. We were working very closely with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in DC. We were working with some large companies like BAE Systems and Marconi Hazeltine and Philadelphia Federal Credit Union. And not that they had problems with that. They were just very proactive about it because the Supreme Court had issued um, a statement which said you need to have an alternate complaint procedure, you need to provide training, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it was very, very clear that there was some conformity requirements, while at the same time, people needed to have freedom to be who they are. Mm. And, and that kind of really, when you think about it, conformity and doing what everybody else does, um, I'm a huge advocate of creative chaos. Interesting. Yeah, and what I mean with that is, you know, let people do what they want to do, mm -hmm. but guide them into the right direction and give that space where you, it's almost like when you have a bumper car at a, at a festival, well, that bumper car can go anywhere, but there is a little bit of a, of a, of a borderline how far this bumper car can go, Right. but give people the empowerment, right? We talked about total quality management 20 years ago. And, and when you think about total quality management, it's all about employee empowerment and having the freedom and the power and the uh, kind of the common intelligentsia to make a decision. And if, if we're talking about liberty, we also have to talk about the culture of failure. 
Right. And and the culture of failure, I mean, you tell young children, I mean, undergrads, grad students, you say the word failure, they look at you like you just gave them the nastiest piece of fish that was rotten on the beach and you made them eat it. Right. And, and failure is probably one of the most important things you can do in life because failure is this, this, this moment in time to recognize something didn't work the way we all thought it would. And the failure itself is really not the problem. The problem is, is how do people react to failure and what do we do with it? Right. In agile, in agile project management, we've learned for a long time that if something doesn't go right, we go back, we do it again. Like, you know, you put the sock in the washing machine, you clean it again, still not clean. Let's put it again until it fits and until it's clean. That's kind of agile project management. In companies, in corporations, for some reason, we're very reluctant to do that because if I admit failure, I'm not as good of a guy, right? I'm not as strong of a woman. I'm not as strong of a leader, of a manager. I'm not as, as, as you know, attractive. And, and fascination, it's, it's interesting. And I'm quoting Sally Hawkshead again. She says, there's an interesting difference between men and women. Men want to be fascinated and women want to be fascinating. Interesting. And when you really think about that and you think about the attitude, just go in a boardroom, go into a meeting and how different the attitudes just on that particular subject between men and women are, and I don't mean to stereotype, but it's a fact. Mm -hmm. There's a huge difference which also speaks to the active engagement in the context of meetings oftentimes, which is where, again, talking about liberty, talking about survival, talking about creativity, talking about innovation, talking about how is the company mission driven, that's an important piece. And now let me go back to that. I think one of the things as companies, we have a mission, right? We have something to get done. The company, if the company makes sneakers, if it's Adidas, if it's Converse, if it's Nike, and all the other uh, uh, sports equipment they make and sports clothing, that's what the company does. Right. And I think what we forget in companies oftentimes is this. We have a process in a company, right? It's, it's a, it's, which is part of the reason why I call myself a business thinker. I critically look at the process in an organization. And the process should work regardless if it's you there, me there, or anybody else. But in the responsibility of the person who's doing it, they should be exceeding and really loving what they do and contribute their part to the organization, technically, professionally, and culturally most important. And if I can't switch the conversation in organizations from the human resource person saying, so um, how are you gonna fit into the company? Because we need you to fit into the company the following way. That's no longer the conversation. The conversation needs to be, wow, Mila, that is so fascinating. It is amazing what you're going to be able to add to the company and to the culture of this company. Yes, we want you to work for us. Because it's no longer, hey, show me how high you can jump candidate. It's about candidate telling the company, hey, how high are you going to jump for me that I can actually do and bring my creative talent, my culture, my soul, my heart to you 
so I can flourish and help you be even better and more competitive. And that's the way the conversation needs to shift. And that's, I think some companies, and it's not, I think, I know some companies are finally starting in all depth to have this conversation. And there are some absolute leaders in the human resource space who are finally having the conversation on that basis. But there is still, again, five generations in the workforce, a lot of those traditionalists. And, you know, why do we expect different results if we still do what 98% of companies still do? Uh, you got to be part of the one or 2% doing it really, really, really differently in order to expect a different result. Right. I, I love what you just shared about the fit, right? The culture fit. And I feel like that's just such a, a wrong lingo to use, culture fit. I feel like every time I hear culture fit, I, I think about um, a wedding suit. Does it yeah. fit? Yeah. Or oh, one size fits all. I think that's just a part in my language. I think that's just bullshit. Yeah. It's no, there's no such thing as one size fits all because culture is man-made. Culture is supposed to be fluid. It's supposed to evolve according to the people. For example, when we look at a country, right? Any progressive country or any progressive community, a community thrives when everyone is constantly evolving the way they think, the way they do. They do not do the same thing. Like they do not even have that that narrative or, or it's it, if it's not broken, do not fix it. Or this is how it's done and this is how we're gonna do it. Right? People are actually courageous to reinvent the wheel. Right? Doesn't mean that, oh, this is the wheel made from a stone or concrete. We can't reinvent it to, ma to make it in the form of a rubber or to make it in the form of like flexible gear that goes on top of mountains smoothly without any bumps. Like, culture is supposed to be fluid, and I feel like it's no longer culture fit, it's culture evolution. Oh, absolutely. And, and you also touched on the failure, which I absolutely love, right? Because th that's so true in not just growing up in different generations, right? Well, I'm so thankful that my parents always said, fail as much as you want. And failure is just a science experiment. And we need to start looking at failures as not failures, but as science experiments. What do scientists do every time when they do a science experiment? They do test one test two, test three, or test one was not optimal. Let's see why wasn't it optimal. And let's take the factors that were optimal and move on to test two. And that's how we need to look at, like you said, the cultural failure. We need to fail in order to find our greatest strength and greatest innovation and visionary concepts. Yep. And I absolutely love what you just said. You know, we need to to constantly embrace that culture of failure. Well, I think it's, you know, I think if we, if we talk about cultural and, and I mean, there's a big, there's a big discussion about, um, and I, I hope I'm going to get it right from a social cultural evolution, right? So when you think about culture, also from a structural change as an organization, part of social cultural evolution is a change which is affected over time, right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of what that is all about. And the way it's affected is by human beings which are going through their own cultural change, 
which is their own evolution in context of reaching different stages in social development. And we, we, we kind of that evolutionary process of who we are as human beings and really looking at that with all our difficulties. I mean, take a look at, um, there's applications out there, uh, and I'm not an advocate of them, and I'm not saying they're good or bad, or I'm sure some people have great experiences with it, but Talkspace, right, is one of those apps where you mm -hmm. go on and you can get your therapist on demand. And I think that that app itself is very timely. Um, because when you think about transformational technology and you think about where people are um, in a space of safety in regards to um, their mental stage, the reality is that in two to three years, we will not have enough mental health counselors mm -hmm. to support people who have to live with fear and anxiety and anxiety being fear, um, uh, uh, depression, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we address that? So I think technology needs to play a big role in that. But more importantly, as companies, as, as senior executives, as stewards of the younger generations, we have to acknowledge that there is a big, 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 and I don't want to call it an opportunity. I think it's an opportunity, but I think first let's acknowledge that there's a big problem and a disconnect. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, where we, we fall short because we communicate on such different levels. It's like, you know, the generational conflict is just, it's just, um, I think, very obvious. And the tension and the dynamics, which need to be, uh, the, the integration just needs to, I think, happen very differently. Yeah, I, that's, that's beautifully put, Stefan. Stefan, I know that we are running out of time. And before we go, I want your, from your point of view, right, what three advice or even one advice can you give our listeners in in how to become a more grounded person or a leader so i'm going to make this very simple um, and i think we've talked about it earlier and it's two pieces mm -hmm. the easiest way to really find yourself grounded um, is creating a new habit and a new habit creation is really something the old days we used to say it takes three weeks <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> university of research has shown it takes about 60 to 70 days to create a new habit so what i would invite everybody to really explore is start meditation meditation is a great way to be really um, reflective without making a particular effort out of it but it's a quiet time and it is a grounding exercise, particularly in the morning, to do it every day. It takes about 22 days to break an old habit. It takes about 22 days to implement a new one, and then 22 days to really install it. Um, so give it 60, 70 days, and it will become a, a, a really, and there's so many great applications out there on, on, on iPhone and the Android uh, marketplace, um, which I think is, is fantastic. And the second piece is to really be grounded is really connect with the fact of um, there's a lot of things to be grateful for and, and a small little gratitude exercise. Journaling has helped me a lot as I went through some significant transitions over the last two years. Um, and it's really um, a part where uh, you think in the morning about two, three, four things. It's not a big formal exercise, but think about two, three, four things, maybe write them down 
in a gratitude journal and being having gratitude actually and doing a journal like this is proven in the context of neuroplasticity to actually make you a happier person and uh, you know we talk about so much things in happiness and what makes me happier and uh, let me take another course and another online course for being happier there's much more basic things you can do um, and then the third thing i would say is connect with nature um, if you live next to the beach, you have a grass outside, take your shoes off and literally stand on the grass. That is a grounding exercise. Touch a tree. That's a grounding exercise. And, and I'm, anybody who knows me personally uh, will know I love nature. I love being outside if that's in the winter uh, skiing, if that's in the summer mountain biking. But I'm anything else but a tree hugger. But I have learned to really employ these kinds of things because I feel the craving for it myself to be outside, to be standing in the sand, walking in the sand, um, put your feet on the grass, if that's in the mountains, if that's in uh, Europe, if that's in Austria and Switzerland and Colorado and on the West Coast, on the beach, wherever it may be. Um, it really has an immensely, immensely calming effect. Um, and I think, again, the basis to being a great leader, the basis to being anybody to influence and inspire and motivate other people is you know i can't say it any other way start cleaning up your own shit first before you start telling other people what to do that makes a great leader and i think that's kind of from a nucleus from a catalytic standpoint uh, that's where it starts to become a great leader that's beautifully put stefan in the spirit of gratitude i am truly and sincerely grateful for your mind, your heart, and the time you took to share your insight on today's episode of Human Becomings. Thank you for coming on board, Stefan. Mila, thank you for you know, making the space for this conversation um, and, and for having me as your guest. You're welcome.